He's making a list. He's checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Who doesn't love the Santa Claus story? Santa shows up. He has those, those rosy red cheeks and a nice full beard. He's jolly. He drives a sleigh that flies, that's pulled along by reindeer. I mean, he's incredible. And not, not only that, all those cool things about him, he can eat like 10 million cookies in one night. And maybe best of all, he brings gifts. Who doesn't love a good gift giver? And yet, upon further review, Santa's not, strictly speaking, a gift giver, is he? No, no, no. He, he has a list. He checks it twice. And what is he finding out? Who's naughty and who is nice? And so you see at the end of the day, Santa Claus gives gifts to those who have earned them. If you're nice, you have a wonderful gift. But if you are bad, well, it's not that big a deal. You just get a lump of coal. I think very often, many Christians, maybe some of us, think of Christianity the same way we think of Santa Claus. That it's about being just a really good person. And if we are nice enough, then we will enter into eternal life. We will be acceptable before God. But friends, it is crucial for us to recognize that this is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not that the, the nice people are in and the mean people or the bad people are out. The message of Christianity is that we are all out, we are all bad people, and that we all need a Savior. So the message of Christianity is that God loves really bad people so much that he sent Jesus to become one of us so that he might save us from our sins. So that he might prove himself just by upholding his righteousness and punishing sin. And at the same time, Clear us of all wrongdoing, forgiving sins. Christmas, Jesus becoming a man, is how God keeps this great and gracious promise. God doesn't give to us what we deserve. If he did that, we would all be under his wrath for all eternity right now. But instead, he gives grace. That is, he gives to us the opposite of what we deserve. He gives to us Christ. Christmas is not about being really nice. It's about the Savior who came so that we can be made new. And Christmas is necessary because of sin. 
We see sin enter the world in our text this morning, Genesis chapter 3. And I think the, the main idea, or at least the thing I want to highlight this morning, is that God judges sin and promises a Savior. He promises to rescue his people. And the exhortation this morning is, is quite specific, and it won't make sense until the very end of the sermon, assuming I don't forget. But it's to, to take and eat. To take and eat. We've got the outline there before you. We will pray, uh, give some background about the text, and then uh, enter into walking through this wonderful section of God's Word together. Father, we confess that we are sinners in need of your mercy and grace. We confess that this week we have sinned much. Even during a week of thanksgiving, there were times where we were ungrateful. Pray that you would fill our hearts with thankfulness this morning as we contemplate all that you've given to us. The beauty of the natural world, revelation of yourself and your word. Indeed, you've given to us your very self in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray this morning that we would stand in awe of who you are. That we would see your heart for us. For the lost. And that we would be moved to worship you more deeply. To trust you more firmly. And to lean more desperately into the everlasting arms of Christ Jesus. We ask that you would be glorified in this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis is the beginning of the Bible. And if you're familiar at all with Christianity, you know that it opens up with God creating all that exists. And it's very good. You can read it there in Genesis 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It's good. I mean, there is one little hiccup where, where man is alone, and God says it's not good for man to be alone. I need to make a helper suitable for him. All the animals parade in front of Adam. He names them, but none of them is quite suitable to be Adam's complement. And so, one time, God causes Adam to fall asleep and takes from him a rib to make a helper suitable for him. He creates Eve. Adam wakes up and he sings that first, and I assume it's a lovely ballad in Hebrew. doesn't sound great in English. But, but he sings, At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I don't know what it sounded like, but he's excited. He's singing to this woman. And they complement one another perfectly. Everything is in harmony. Everything is good. Everything is perfect. The man and the woman are together. They are naked and unashamed. You see that in verse 25 of chapter 2. And this comment on their nakedness is not an encouragement to the exhibitionist among you. But it's to point out something that the nakedness is also laden with symbolically. Their, their literal nakedness teaches us a lesson about what's going on in the garden. 
There is no shame. There is no guilt. There is no embarrassment. There is no fear. Things are good. Until they are not. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning or crafty of all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Before we examine those lines from the serpent, let's try to figure out who or what the serpent is. We know from from the rest of Scripture that this serpent is Satan. Now, whether he is the embodiment of Satan or possessed by Satan or a figurative representation of Satan, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that it is the evil one. And so a subsequent question comes, if God made everything good and sin hasn't yet entered the world of humanity, where does this crafty one come from? And there are myriad of explanations And the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about it, but I think what we can say at a minimum is this, is that Satan was among those heavenly hosts created by God. And in his pride sought to himself take God's place. And as a consequence was cast down from heaven. You can read about this in poetic language in the book of Ezekiel, it's chapter 28, as well as in Isaiah chapter 14. Evil is out there. God has been rebelled against. And now, in the serpent, Satan himself, evil, has showed up in the garden. And he has one aim. To undermine the authority of God. To cause the downfall of God's creation. He wants to break it apart. And the means by which he's going to go about that, is a tree. This question seems innocuous at at first. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? But what Satan is doing is attempting to cause Eve to question God's goodness. He won't let you eat from any tree, and she's, of of course, going to retort, we're allowed to eat from all the trees except for one. But Satan knows that that's where the conversation is going to go. He wants to bring this tree front and center. He wants to say, here's the red button that God said you can't press. And I'm going to want you to press it. But why is this tree so significant? It's mentioned back in verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. The tree is significant for a few reasons. Uh, For one thing, it is a reminder to humanity that their authority over creation is derived and limited. It's not sovereign. When God told them not to eat this fruit from this tree, he's rightly reminding Adam and Eve that he is the ultimate king. That though they are honored vice-regents of creation, he is the ultimate Lord and creator. 
That's why the punishment is so severe. Punishment is death. To disobey the command not to eat from the tree would be a declaration of war against God. Tree is also significant because the first readers of Genesis would have immediately recognized that to know good and evil was typical of a job description for a judge in Israel. That was their job, was to know good from evil and to make these judgments. It meant that the judge would discern good from evil and then hand down decisions that reflected those realities. So the, the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil is also a, a tree of judgment. It is a monument to God's lordship. A reminder that he is the one who is in authority. That he is the one who is to be obeyed. That his judgments are the ones that are right. With that in mind, the serpent comes and says, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, do you hear the suggestion on the question? The suggestion is that God really isn't all that good. That God, in, in some way, is holding out on you. I can't believe that God would put any restrictions on you whatsoever. That's so unloving of him. This is underneath the question. But we know that God is, in fact, good. That God is not holding out on Eve at all. We know that, that freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but finding the right ones. God functions like a wise parent. He gives rules that are aimed at the flourishing and maturation of his children. What's best for Adam and Eve is to honor God as God. So, for example, most parents do not allow their children to eat ice cream for every meal. Right? It's just not, not great to have the, uh, is it Chubby Bunny that people like? Or, or, or Marshmallow Madness, whatever flavor it is. It's not great to have that for every meal. It might, it might taste good, you might think it's good, you might desire that, but ultimately, it's going to be a poor decision for the child. That's why parents don't let their kids do it. That's why, why a parent has the rule, don't touch the hot stove. It's not because the parent's holding out on the child and, oh, there's so much fun to be had if we just touch that hot stove. No. It's to protect the child. To cultivate the child. Likewise, God's rules are for the good of His people. He's not holding out on Eve and He's, he's not holding out on you. Too often, we tend to view God as some sort of cosmic killjoy. doesn't want us to have any fun. That's not the case at all. God is the author of joy. And His rules are good and righteous. I mean, read Psalm 119. Read Psalm chapter 19. The psalmist talks about the rules of God as if they are honey on His tongue. And this is how we should relate to God's Word and His rules. We should view them as, as honey on our tongue. 
a delight to our souls, not, not something that is just arbitrary. God's not holding out on us, and he, he wasn't holding out on Eve. And yet, the serpent seems to imply that he is. And he does this by way of asking a slithery question. Did God really say? There's a difference between questions and questioning. There's a difference between a question that has the motive of finding an answer and a question that is motivated by undermining authority. And it is the latter that Satan asks. He's not really interested in figuring out what God has said. He's interested in conjuring up doubt inside of Eve. He's interested in leading her down this path that ends in sin and rebellion. He wants to undermine God's authority. Friends, it is crucial. If we are to be mature and ministering worshipers of God, it is a non-negotiable that we know what God has said. We must believe God's word. And we must believe that it's good for us. Therefore, we give ourselves to singing God's word, praying God's word, to listening to God's word proclaimed as we are listening now. We know that God has revealed himself in his word. We know that he's good. And consequently, we do not doubt his goodness when his word contradicts what we think might be best. Do you operate like that? Do you really believe that God's word is true and good? Or are you tempted by that first question of the serpent? Did God really say? You know, Satan very, very seldomly shows up and says explicitly, God says that you shouldn't do this. I think you should do this. Now, more often, he shows up as an angel of light. Shows up questioning like a professor. Has God really said? Has God really spoken in a book? Surely, those rules and restrictions are antiquated. They don't apply anymore. They're cultural. We can't, really, we can't really trust this book and build our lives on it. You don't really believe that, do you? So many Christians are led away from God because they haven't figured out how to answer and deal with this simple question. Did God really say? If you're interested about the authority of the Scriptures, Greg Gilbert's written a wonderful little white book called Why Trust the Bible. If you're more um, academic than that, I recommend you B.B. Warfield's The Authority and Inspiration of Scripture. We can trust these words have been given to us 
by God. Indeed, they are true and wonderful. And God really has spoken in this book. Satan speaks to Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she responds, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Notice a couple things. Uh, Eve identifies the tree by its geography rather than its significance. She doesn't call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She calls it the tree in the middle of the garden. Secondly, she adds to God's prohibition that you can't even touch it or you will die. Maybe that's what Adam told her since this command came to him initially and he added some of these things on. But either way, we're starting to see that her misunderstanding of God's word has actually amplified the rule to a place that it didn't go before. Nevertheless, her response is enough to prompt this from the serpent. It says, you will not die. You will not die. No, you will not die. The first doctrine to be denied in Scripture is judgment. And I think it's probably the most frequently denied doctrine of Scripture. No one likes judgment because everyone wants to live however they want without any consequences. You can hear that worldly mantra. There's no judgment for sins. You will not surely die. There's no objective right or wrong. The only wrong thing is to tell somebody else that they're wrong. You will not surely die. You have to do you. You will not surely die. Believe in yourself. You will not surely die. Follow your own path. You will not surely die. There, there is no judgment. The doctrine of judgment may be frequently denied, but there is nothing more certain. God, because he is entirely good and just, will not suffer the defaming of his name and the propagation of evil in perpetuity. He will exact payment for sin. And the chief example of this is, of course, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas was about Jesus becoming killable so that he might die on the cross in the place of all those who would put their faith in him. That he would absorb the wrath of God towards my sin and your sin so that we don't have to. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He deals with it. And the cross is how God ends evil without ending us. Jesus comes at Christmas the first time to bear the judgment that we deserve. To bear the punishment for sins. And when he returns the second time, it will be to bring judgment to all who scorn his grace and his mercy. 
all sin has been or will be paid for. If your faith is in Jesus, then your judgment day happened on Good Friday. But if you refuse the Lord Jesus Christ, your judgment day is coming someday in the future when Christ returns to end all evil. Judgment is real. Don't believe the lie, friend, that there are no consequences for how you live. God is just, and He will address every injustice, including yours. Trust Him. Trust Christ. Receive His grace and live. Serpent says, no, you will not die. In fact, verse 5, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a really interesting proposition. Because we know that Adam and Eve are already like God. Right? Verse 27, chapter 1. God created man, that's man and woman, in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. They're already like God. So, so what, what is the serpent getting at here? What is he saying exactly? Well, he's saying, eat from this tree and you can be your own God. You can determine right and wrong for yourself. You can call your own shots. That's why God doesn't want you to eat from him. He doesn't want you to be equal to him. He wants to keep you under his thumb. Just eat. You won't die. You'll find yourself more alive than ever. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate of it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. In my my sanctified imagination here, I see Satan before Adam and Eve at the tree taking a big bite of the apple as he says these things. You will, it's not an apple, right? We don't know. I just, apple traditionally. It's some kind of fruit. Uh, God's not, it's not like he really has it out for apples and um, it's just kind of a whimsical thing. Bananas are good, oranges are good, but apple's really bad. Uh, It's some kind of fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit. I'm using an apple here in this illustration, just so we're all on the same page. And so we see the, the serpent kind of taking a bite of this apple and saying, you won't die. It's good for food. You'll be like God. You can kind of see Adam and Eve's eyes widening It is desirable for food. It is delightful to look at. 
I don't know if he actually ate or not. But, but what we ought to see is that this is tempting for them. It's tempting for them. They think we can be, we can be our own gods. And, and it really is an odd thing to think you can achieve divinity by being led by a subordinate. After all, man and woman were to rule over the creatures of the garden and to expand the garden so that it filled all of the earth so that the whole world would be filled with the worshipers of God and the presence of God. And yet here they ignore that call. They put their desires above God's command, such as the nature of sin. And they take and eat. But what should have happened here is Adam should have, once the serpent started speaking to his wife, he should have said, I I'm king here, a vice regent of the creator God who made everything, who made you. You may not commit this treason. You may not conspire against the high king of Eden. I sentence you to death. You should have taken his heel and crushed the head of the serpent beneath it. But instead, it was silent. And the silence helps us to get a vision of all the things that the serpent is doing. He doesn't want to just undermine God's authority. He wants to turn God's creation and the order of creation on its head. God created man. From man, he created woman for man. He charged man and woman to together rule and reign over the garden and over the beasts of the field. And what is happening in Genesis 3? Well, we have a beast of the field going to the woman who then leads the man to take and eat the apple. You see how the kind of hierarchy that is built into humanity here is just turned upside down. The beast of the field is leading God's image bearers in rebellion against the way that God has designed them and in rebellion against God himself. He wants to undo the entire created order. Indeed, evil and sin throws everything into chaos. So simple the act. Take and eat so hard would be its undoing. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
there's sewing together fig leaves is meant to be a little bit comical, a little bit pathetic. Oh, we gotta, gotta cover ourselves up. And what we see is that unashamed nakedness of chapter 2, verse 25, is undone by this action. For the first time in human history, there is shame. For the first time in human history, there is guilt. For the first time in human history, there is fear of the judgment of God. They hide themselves. And notice what the all-knowing, omniscient God does. He doesn't snuff them out in an instant. He doesn't come with lightning bolts of anger. He moves towards them and speaks to them. Indeed, judgment will be pronounced. But alongside that judgment will be a promise of grace and mercy. God loves his people. And he's wise enough to bring glory out of sorrow. To bring beauty out of ashes. wise enough to resurrect the dead and to redeem sinners like Adam and Eve and sinners like you and me. He's not surprised by the fall, planned for it, and he's not put off by their sin. He moves towards them. We have to get our our minds around the heart of God. I think oftentimes when we sin, we feel that guilt, we feel the shame, and we, we try to cover ourselves up with metaphorical fig leaves. We withdraw ourselves from God. And we think that, that he's mad at us. But friends, if you are in Christ, not mad at you. God moves towards sinners. He delights to save sinners. He is incredibly gracious. Jesus Christ is the most understanding human being you will ever meet. When you are sinning, you feel caught in sin, don't run away from Jesus. He's moving towards you. Not with a hammer, but with a hug. Don't allow your sin to stop you from coming to the only one who can forgive it. God moves towards his people. And you almost see this like a chilling normalcy to this scene. It's very just regular, as if this is a regular pattern. 
It reminded me a little bit when I was thinking about it uh, of how at the end of my really long commute from, from this building to, to my home over there, it's quite strenuous. As I walk up the driveway, what will frequently happen is my children will come pouring out of my house and they will say, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And it's like, hail to the conquering hero. You know, and Chelsea's like, what am I over here? Like, chopped liver? I don't get this kind of ovation. And they, they come and they stream out, full hearts, smiles, hugs, tickling. And it's, it's just a normal part of life, a very joyous part of life. You're going to see that a similar thing happening here. The regular routine. God comes to enjoy fellowship with his people. And instead of meeting his children with hearts full of laughter, instead of hearing the sounds of rejoicing, there is a silence filled with shame. His children hide behind fig leaves. Still, he speaks to his people. Makes a pronouncement of both judgment and the salvation that will ultimately come through judgment. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked and so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. This is a pronouncement of judgment, not a commentary about how snakes came to slither on their belly. Satan will be judged. The serpent will eat dust at the sign of judgment. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust. And to dust you will return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. 
the Lord God made clothing from the skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. There are so many consequences for this sin. I'm not going to be able to comment at length on all of them, but briefly would like to point out some of them. At the top of the list comes this banishment. God does not want man to live in sin forever. Furthermore, man must be banished from the garden. So he drives him out along with his wife. They are separated from the immediate presence of God. Second consequence will be relational rivalry between the man and the woman. You see that in verse 16? She will desire to have mastery over her husband. And yet he will rule over her and be tempted to do so in a way that is abusive. Their harmonious complementarity is cracked by sin. The woman and the man both will experience labor pains. The woman in childbearing and the man as he works the ground. Death is a consequence of this sin. Satan says, no, you will not surely die. Yes, they will. They will die a spiritual death, being separated from God. They will have a physical death as they die years later. And there will be, if they don't put their faith in God's promise, an eternal death stretched out across eternity under God's righteous wrath towards sin. There will also be a struggle. Hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And yet embedded there in verse 15, amidst these words of judgment and curse are words of a promise of a gift of Christmas. The hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God will send someone to crush the head of the serpent. God is promising to send a dragon slayer to free man from sin and death and the rule of Satan. Indeed, he will send a new Adam. The new Adam is promised and the new Adam has come. The first Adam fell into temptation in the garden. The second Adam 
overcame temptation in the wilderness. The first Adam failed to submit to God at the tree of judgment, saying, I will be like God. And the second Adam submitted himself perfectly to God and died on the tree of judgment. The first Adam failed to crush the serpent's head. The second Adam has risen from the dead with blood and bone on his heel. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Christmas is meaningless without the crucifixion and resurrection. The resurrection finishes what was started with the incarnation. The resurrection of the dead is not merely a hope for the future. It is God's work that has already begun in Christ. That will be completed when Christ returns. And already the tombs and coffins of those who are in Christ who have passed before us are creaking and cracking with expectation. Christmas isn't about being good or earning our way into God's presence. It's about God's promise and His provision for our sin. But we sin, we're dead in our sins, and He saves us. That's Christmas. Christmas isn't a baby lying in a manger. It's the infinite God becoming what He was not while never ceasing to be what He was. Becoming a man. It's that man upon the cross with our sin upon His shoulders. It's Jesus resurrected and pressing His foot down on the head of the serpent so that all of His people can live like Him. And feel that same crunch of the evil one's skull beneath their feet. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Friends, we were created not to walk around fearfully. Not to be defeated. We were created not to walk on eggshells, but to stomp on serpents. We need not fear death. We need not fear those who can kill the body and then do nothing else. We serve the God who raises the dead. Death's days are numbered. Sin's days are numbered. And the darkness is thinning out. In Christ, a light has dawned and is shining. And soon the sun will be at its zenith. And so, as you battle sin, fear not. Do not be discouraged. Rest in Christ. 
God rest ye, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Christmas will only bring you comfort and joy when you trust in the snake crusher, Jesus Christ. It will only bring you peace when you take and eat. This is perhaps a connection that you haven't seen before. Derek Kidner's commentary brought it to my attention. But the two verbs that are involved with the eating of the fruit is take and eat. And I love how Jesus redeems these words. The actions, taking and eating, brought death into the world. And the Lord Jesus transforms them as verbs that bring life. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat. This is my body. He took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. Friends, put your faith in Christ this morning. Take and eat of the bread of life and enjoy the promise of Christmas. Delight in the wonderful truth that God judges sin, will end evil, has promised a Savior and has promised to return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your commitment to us. We thank you for the incredible truth that you see us for who we are. You see the worst parts of us. And instead of being disgusted by us, you delight in us. You move towards us. You speak to us words of life. the gospel. But we pray that we would believe your word this morning. We thank you for the word made flesh. We thank you that Jesus reigns. That he lives bodily, ruling from your right hand right now. And that he lives in us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would honor you. We thank you for your marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Thank you for giving us the opposite of what we deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.